0: Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all. For my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelze- Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops." And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me Is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it.
1: Please do hold your places there in Matthew 10, 16, and following, and we'll be referring to that throughout the rest of the message. In 1995, I was the pastor of a church in Memphis, Tennessee. I got a call very early one Sunday morning before the sun had even risen saying, Preacher, you need to get to the church right away. So I quickly got ready, got in the car, drove up to the church, which was only a few miles away from my house, and found that the back parking lot of the church was full of fire trucks and patrol cars with red and blue flashing lights everywhere. I walked up to the guy that seemed to be in charge, asked what was going on, and he explained that the church had been vandalized that night. Someone had broken into the church, smashed windows, spray-painted walls, wrecked equipment. He also led me into my smoke-filled office and showed me that they had made it past three very heavy bolted doors to get into my office, get all the papers off of my desk, pile them up in the middle of the floor, and set them on fire. It would likely have burned the whole place down. We had flame retardant carpet, though, so that prevented the flames from spreading quickly. And a sheriff's deputy on patrol saw the flames flickering through the window just in time to call the fire department and get the fire out before it spread. As They mentioned, by the way, a church not far from here was also struck last night, and it didn't fare as well. On my way home, I took a short little detour to check that situation out. And I found that that church had been completely gutted by the flames. As I walked through the empty shell of that building, I bowed my head and prayed, thanking God that no one had been hurt in those attacks. But asking myself, how could people hate Christ and the gospel so much that they would do such a thing? And in those moments, I sensed that there was a new spiritual climate in our nation, that we were on the brink of a new era of persecution in our country, and that proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and standing firm in your faith would no longer be applauded by the masses, would no longer be popular or convenient or comfortable, but many of us would pay a very high price. The hunch that I had in those moments has been confirmed the last decade, hasn't it? Now in the United States of America, we see situations where the sermons of pastors are being subpoenaed by the courts, where Christian businessmen who try to live according to biblical principles are so heavily fined that their entire business goes under. Christians who work for the government who follow their Christian convictions are being jailed Night after night, and it seems that the spiritual climate of our nation is only growing darker and darker and darker. But as dark as it may seem, it pales in comparison to the kinds of situations that brothers and sisters in Christ face right now all around the world. April the 1st of last year, a Muslim man confessed faith in Jesus Christ as his God, Savior, and King. It outraged the Islamic community. And a group of Muslim men apprehended this new Christian, hacked and slashed his body with their machetes, and then they surrounded the Baptist church and pastor's home that had been instrumental in his conversion. They went into a nearby cornfield, gathered up all the dry corn stalks, piled them high in the middle of the church and pastor's home, and set them on fire as the church members begged them to stop. The church and the pastor's home were burned completely to the ground with the pastor's daughter still inside. Pastor Habila Garba's daughter died of smoke inhalation, the authorities said, only seconds before her body was claimed by the flames. And these kinds of atrocities are committed against our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ all around the world every single day. As the Lord Jesus Christ sent his disciples out into the villages of Judea and Galilee to preach the gospel, he warns them that they will face intense and brutal persecution. And he gives them instructions as to how to prepare for that persecution. The instructions of the Lord Jesus to the twelve, here in Matthew 10, still apply to us today, and more so now than in the past, as persecution of the church intensifies. Instruction number one. The Lord Jesus said, reflect on the brutality of the coming persecution. In Matthew 10, 16, Christ said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now most of us have never seen what happens when a little lamb finds itself in the middle of a ravenous pack of wolves. That We've seen enough documentaries on television about predators to envision the kind of scene that Jesus is describing bow hunting in Louisiana where there were lots of feral hogs. I remember vividly the screams and the shrill whines of the baby pigs when a pack of coyotes would get it down and begin to rip it apart. And every time I read this reference, I think of that scene, that eerie sound that would cause spine chills to run up and down your spine. Jesus is saying that the attack of persecutors against the Christian church will be like the rage of hungry predators frenzied by the taste of blood. It will be ugly, it will be mean, it will be vicious, and it will be painful. Christ gives two explicit examples of the persecution that His disciples will face. First of all, He says, they will flog you in their synagogues, verse 17. We know a lot about Jewish synagogue flogging because they're vividly described in an ancient document called the Mishnah. The Mishnah tells us that based on Deuteronomy 25, when you whip somebody in the synagogue, you were not supposed to exceed 40 blows with the whip. But the synagogue Rulers had decided that if somebody accidentally exceeded the prescribed 40 number of blows and the victim of the lashing died, that they would be charged with manslaughter and have to spend the rest of their life in exile. So the rabbi said it's best to give them 40 blows minus 1. That is 39. There would be 26 lashes on the shoulders and the back, and then another 13 on the chest and the stomach. The Mishnah makes it clear that the point of this torture, unlike Roman scourging, was not to actually kill the victim. It was to inflict as much pain as possible upon them, just short of killing them. Roman scourging was often fatal, but they didn't want the victim of scourging to die. They wanted him to hurt so badly that he wished he were dead. So when they were sentenced to the punishment, they would walk into the synagogue and they would have their upper garments torn away to completely expose the flesh of the torso. Then they would have their hands tied around a stone pillar. The point was to make the flesh on the back and shoulders as tall as possible so that every strike of the whip would do all the more damage. The law said that the tormentor was to climb on the top of another stone pillar so that he would have the advantage of gravity and he was to strike them on the flesh with the whip with his one hand quote, with all of his might sparing no effort. The instrument that he used in this torture was a wooden handle whip that had four to six lashes coming out of the end. And what that meant is that every single one of those 39 blows would be multiplied four to six times over. In other words, the typical 39 blow lashing would result in somewhere between 156 and 234 strikes of the lash. Uh, Some of you may know that the crack of a bullwhip isn't actually caused by the sound of leather slapping on leather. Instead, it's caused by the tip of the whip, according to physicists, breaking the sound barrier when it exceeds the speed of sound. And you can imagine the kind of damage that that leather whip would do as it struck the flesh again and again and again until often the flesh hung down in ribbons. The Jewish law said that once this torture began, nothing was to interrupt it except if a male victim lost control of both bodily functions or a female victim lost control of one of her bodily functions because they had enough medical knowledge to know that that meant death was imminent. And again, the point of the torture was not to kill you, but to inflict as much pain on you as possible just short of death. By the time the Apostle Paul writes his second letter to the Corinthians in our New Testament, he tells us that he has experienced the synagogue flogging three separate times. In other words, his shoulders and back and chest and stomach were riddled with somewhere between 468 and 702 long, deep scars. Literally, scar upon scar, upon scar. And Christ says, if you think this is bad enough, understand that sometimes it won't end there. Sometimes they will actually put you to death. And the testimony of the early church confirms that this was often experienced by Jesus' disciples. Acts 6, Deacon Stephen is stoned to death. Acts 12, the apostle James is beheaded with the sword by the order of Herod Agrippa. Then the Apostle Paul is stoned and led for dead in Lystra. Ultimately, after his second Roman imprisonment, he is beheaded with the sword by the order of the Emperor Nero. Only months later, the Apostle Peter will be crucified upside down by the order of the Emperor Nero. And we've only scratched the surface. Tacitus and Suetonius, two Roman men who lived during the first century, recorded for us the atrocities of Nero against the Christians after the great fire in Rome. He tells us that in an unthinkable event called the Bestiari, that Christians would be thrown into the Roman arena and then all kinds of wild animals would be unleashed against them. They would be trampled by elephants gored by rhinos and wild bulls. They would be ripped to shreds by the fangs and claws of bears and tigers while the Roman audience applauded and cheered. These same men tell us that during the height of the anti-Christian persecution in Rome that Nero would literally dip live Christians into vats, of pitch and tar to make their flesh flammable, then hoist them to the top of tall poles and set them on fire, transforming them into living, writhing, screaming human torches. It would serve as lamps for the garden parties that Nero threw in his court. Yes, the people of Rome would dance ...to the flickering lamplight of these suffering Christians. And such atrocities continue to be committed against believers in Jesus Christ even now. Believe it or not, there have been more martyrs for the cause of Christ in the last century... ...than all the previous centuries of Christian history combined... What Christ wants us to understand is that the day is coming when persecution will be far more severe than the subpoena of sermons or the loss of a business or even a few nights in jail. The day is coming when we may have to lay down our very lives for the cause of Christ. And so He urges His disciples to take up the cross and follow Him. That means that we need to be prepared to shoulder a literal cross drag it to a literal place of execution, and literally be nailed there out of allegiance to our God, Savior, and King, Jesus Christ. Instruction number two. Christ says, recognize the wisdom in fleeing persecution. In 1016 again, he says, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. It's a little bit puzzling that Christ would use snakes as a positive example that we are to imitate in times of persecution because we associate the serpent completely with evil because of its role in Genesis 3. But Christ says there are some good things about snakes that are worthy of imitation, and here's one look at their wisdom. Now, what's this wisdom that he's referring to? Well, I'm convinced that he's referring to the wisdom of the serpent in fleeing from danger when it arises. I say that because of the context here in Matthew 10, but also because of the way serpents are described in other parts of this gospel. The first time that a serpent is mentioned in the gospel of Matthew is in Matthew 3, 7 and 8. And that's where John the Baptist said to the Pharisees, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. John the Baptist was comparing the Pharisees who needed to escape from the wrath of God to a nest of snakes that sense the warmth of an approaching brush fire and then scurry to escape the danger. All of us know that snakes have amazing reflexes. They can recoil and escape from danger with lightning speed. And Christ says, my disciples need to imitate their example in that. When you face a life or death situation of Christian persecution, if it is possible, you are to flee. Be wise like the snake. And just in case we missed that, Christ will say it very explicitly in chapter 10, verse 23. He says, when they persecute you in one town, do what? Flee. Flee to the next. When I was pastoring my first church up in northeast Mississippi, one of my church members asked me to visit the home of a man who had just been released from prison. She warned me he was really, really mean. I showed up at his door by myself, which was a mistake, but got him to come and sit down on the front porch, and I began to share the gospel with him. As I explained the gospel that the first mention of the name Jesus Christ, he lost it. He went ballistic. And he said, if you ever use that name in my presence again, I will kill you. Well, I thought he probably meant it. Uh, He was missing an ear and his face was badly scarred on one side from a knife fight that he'd been in. He was in prison in the first place for killing a man. I thought he probably meant it, but I was young and cocky enough that I was a little bit irritated by his threat. And so I said, now look, I didn't come here to shove anything down your throat. If you don't want to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, all you have to do is say so, and I'll go. But you see what I did there? I said the name Jesus Christ, the very thing he ordered me not to do. He said, that's it. And he stormed over to the woodpile where he had been splitting firewood, grabbed the axe out of the chopping block, and began to march across the yard at me, screaming, I warned you. Now, I'd only been a pastor for about a year, but I knew exactly what to do in a circumstance like this. I stuck out my chest and put on my best Clint Eastwood impression, and I said, go ahead, make my day. No, none of you believe that. And you're right, you're right. That is not at all what I did. By the time he got halfway across the yard, I was in my little red Ford Fiesta, had that girl all fired up, had it slammed into reverse, and the transmission was whining at a really high pitch. Whee! as I back down the gravel driveway. You say, what a coward. No, I don't think I was a coward. I think if I were a coward, I wouldn't have knocked on that man's door in the first place. I don't think this was cowardice. I think, believe it or not, it was actually obedience. Because Christ clearly says when you as a Christian find yourself in a life and death situation and you have the ability to escape, Do so. Live to share the gospel another day. Now, make no mistake, Christ wants us to be bold and courageous witnesses, and most of us aren't. But he does not want us to be daredevils with a death wish. And sometimes we so romanticize persecution in the church that we think we ought to do really stupid things that are very, very risky in order to show our boldness. No, no, no. Christ expects us to exercise the wisdom of the serpent in these matters. Read the book of Acts. You'll find no more courageous witness for Christ in all of Scripture than the Apostle Paul. But what do you find when you read about Paul's life? You find him running from town to town to town as threats against his life arise so that he can survive to preach the gospel another day to those who otherwise would have had no opportunity to hear it. And this very minute, there are people in the lands that have been invaded by ISIS who are racing for refuge to other countries seeking to escape the rapes And the murders and the beheadings and tortures of those Islamic madmen. They are right to flee. And we should not question their courage in doing so. As a matter of fact, often, both in scripture and in Christian history, God has used the flight of His people from persecution to spread the gospel even further to places it would not otherwise have touched. Principle number three, Christ says, refrain from compromising in the face of persecution. He says, be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. Some Bible translations say harmless as doves, but the Greek word here is akarios, which literally means unmixed. And the idea is that the believer's life should not be a mixture of good and evil. It should be uncontaminated. It should be pure. Why does Christ emphasize that? It's because He recognizes that when persecution against believers intensifies, it is really, really tempting to say, well, uh, maybe the wisest thing for me to do is just kind of blend in. Uh, Maybe it's wisest for me to become like the rest of people and act like an unbeliever and talk like an unbeliever. And if I can just kind of fit in, then it will be a lot safer for me. Christ says, that's not an option. We are to be innocent. We are to be holy. Our lives are to be pure, even if our righteousness is an offense to the ungodly. Instruction number four, Christ says refuse to cower in the face of persecution. Christ has been very frank to us about the dangers that we will face as faithful believers in an era of persecution. And he has warned us, clearly, beware of men. They will betray you and they will attempt to harm you. But even after that warning, three times he commands us, do not be afraid. In 1026, do not fear them. 1028, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. 1031, do not be afraid. Flight is an option for the believer. Fright is not. It's okay for persecuted believers to run, but we cannot run scared. Why not? Because such fear chokes us into silence. Because such fear is inconsistent with genuine faith in God. Let's look at those two principles real quickly. First of all, we must avoid fear because the fear of man is inconsistent with faith in God. Fear of man is based on a really warped theology that implies persecutors are in control and they can do anything to me they want to do and God can't do anything to prevent it. And the Lord Jesus says, oh no, don't exaggerate the power and authority of human beings. It may well be that human persecutors can take your physical life But God can not only kill you physically, he can cast your body and your soul into hell. So whose authority and power is the greater? Man's or God's? Obviously God's. God then alone is worthy of our reverence and our fear. Secondly, we are commanded to flee persecution because... we are commanded not to be afraid in the face of persecution because such fear will choke us into silence. It will cause us to hide and hoard the gospel when we most need to proclaim it. Christ says we are to boldly proclaim the gospel even if it should cost us our lives. Flight may be an option, but fright is not, especially the fright that would make us quiet when we most need to speak up. So Christ says, even in the season of intense persecution where proclaiming the good news may cost you your life, don't be afraid of them. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What I told you in a whisper, shout from the rooftops. Be bold, be courageous. And be loud. Christ went on to say in verses 32 through 33 that whoever confesses him before men, he will confess before the Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies him before men, he will deny before the Father who is in heaven. Please understand, Christ isn't describing here a church scene, he's comparing two court scenes. He's not talking about confessing him before men in the safety and security of a worship service where we walk down the aisle, confess our faith in Christ, and then everybody says amen or applauds or pats us on the back or gives us a hug. Now what Christ is saying addresses a situation where you are being prosecuted for your faith in the Lord Jesus. You are being interrogated by the court. If you deny faith in Christ, you'll live If you confess your faith in Christ, you will die a painful death. And Christ is saying, you must confess me even then. Because if you confess me before the human court, I will confess you on judgment day before the heavenly court. But if you deny me before the human court, I will deny you before the heavenly court. During the Heights of the Great Depression. During his inaugural speech in 1933, F.D. Roosevelt urged Americans to find courage in the face of their challenge with these words. He said, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Roosevelt was saying we can't tolerate fear because fear is crippling. Fear is immobilizing. Fear causes us to sit down and shut up when we most need to stand up and speak up. Now, All of us at times have been gripped by this crippling terror that drives us into silence. And Jesus' disciples would experience that early on. During Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion, they would cower in the shadows. They would hide behind locked doors. They would keep their heads down. And too often they would even deny the name of their Savior. But when the power of the Holy Spirit was outpoured on the day of Pentecost, all of that dramatically changed. And suddenly these cowardly men found the bravery to stand firm even when it cost them their lives. And the good news is that the same spirit that empowered those men to speak in the face of persecution is the same spirit that Christ promises will speak through each of us When we face persecution, verse 20, it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Courage can be ours through the power of the Spirit of God. Instruction 5, reorder your priorities for the coming persecution. Verses 37-38, through Christ explains that we need to make sure as persecution comes... That we love Him first and foremost above all others in our lives. Why is that so desperately important? Because Christ warns those who will turn on us and persecute us won't just be our friends or our neighbors. They'll be our brothers and sisters Our fathers and mothers, our sons and daughters, our husbands and wives. And if our love for those people in any way rivals or competes with our love for Jesus Christ, it means that we may be willing to renounce him in order to preserve our relationship with them when the heat is turned up. And that won't do. Christ says you need to check your heart right now. And make sure that you love me first and foremost. So that if faithfulness to me should cost you every human relationship that you hold dear. You would still be willing to stand firm in persecution. Any lesser love and devotion for the Savior will quickly dissipate. When persecution intensifies. And finally, principle number six, the last that we'll look at today. Christ says, realize that God is sovereign even in persecution. In verses 29 through 31, Christ comforts his disciples in persecution by reminding them of God's great love for them and his great power and authority over them. Christ says, think about the sparrow for a minute. The sparrow is relatively worthless from a human point of view. He says two sparrows are sold for one aserion, a, a tiny copper coin that looks a lot like our modern-day penny. They're not worth much at all. Why were they so cheap? Well, because they were so small. Old Testament dietary laws said that a Jew could eat a sparrow, but no one really wanted to because they were so tiny they had only a morsel of meat on their bones. And you could go to enormous effort to clean the bird and cook it, but get very little from the effort. Only the most impoverished people would eat the sparrow. But then Christ adds... Although they're so worthless, not a single one of them falls to the ground apart from the Father. Christ's point is that the sovereignty of God over nature extends down even to the tiniest details so that even that worthless insignificant bird won't die and come plummeting back to the earth unless sovereign God has ordained it or permitted it. And then Christ adds, you are worth more to God than many sparrows. Sparrow was so worthless that you could buy one for a coin that it would take a poor man only a few minutes of work literally to earn. But in comparison to that, Believers in Jesus Christ are worth vastly more to God. We are so precious to Him. We are so highly valued by Him that He would pay for us not just a small copper coin, but He would sacrifice His own precious Son. God would send His Son, the Lord Jesus, to live the perfect life that we cannot live and then go to the cross and be nailed there be scourged, suffer the very torments of hell itself in our behalf so that we could escape the punishment we deserved. Yes, we are worth more to God than many sparrows. And here's Jesus' point. His point is that if a sparrow doesn't fall to the earth apart from the Heavenly Father, then neither can a disciple be struck down Unless God ordains or permits. And Christ continues. The very hairs of our head are numbered. And his point is that if God cares enough about you. To number the hairs on your head. You can be certain that he has numbered your days. And no human persecutor can add to them. Or take away from them. Your destiny is in the hands of a loving and gracious God. So you can live at peace. Even in the face of persecution. For three years, we served as missionaries in Bucharest, Romania. Our last year there, I was driving through downtown Bucharest and heard a familiar sound. A new attire had gone flat. Uh, we were in the center lane speeding traffic on each side. So I did my best to get over and finally drove literally up onto the sidewalk, which is the only safe place to change a tire in that speeding city of four and a half million people, wild drivers everywhere. But as I was changing the tire, I noticed a piece of metal stuck in the wheel that was the obvious cause of the flap. And, the flat. and I thought, that's odd. I suppose that maybe some piece of equipment had broken and the piece of metal had fallen off the back of a truck into the road, something like that. But I couldn't get the piece of the metal out of the tire, so I left it there. When I took the tire that afternoon to the tire shop, hoping it could be replaced, it couldn't, it was too far gone. And as the man in the tire shop replaced the tire on the rim and saw that piece of metal he looked over his glasses with great concern and said to me, Domno, trebois avets grija, avets un dušman, fuerte pericolos. Which means, mister, you need to be careful. You have a very dangerous enemy. I asked him to explain. He went on to say that that piece of metal had not just made its way by accident into my tire. That it was actually what we would call in the States a tire star. He said this particular design had been used by the Securitate, the infamous secret police of communist Romania to sabotage the cars of political enemies. And he claimed to know people who had died from their cars being sabotaged in this manner. He said, but in your case, you didn't have a blowout. He said, because the third time of the tire star broke off. He said, I don't see how that happened. You can see how thick the steel is that this thing is made out of, but it accidentally broke. So that instead of your tire blowing out, the air slowly seeped out. He said, you should thank your lucky stars. I said, no, I think I should thank a gracious God for protecting me. He just shrugged his shoulders, rolled his eyes, and went back to work. And I got back home and I twirled that tire star around in my fingers. I still have it to this day. The more I reflected on recent events, the more I was convinced that God had supernaturally protected us. That time had not broken on accident. God had done that. And one of the reasons I was convinced was because only a few weeks before, the entire family had nearly died of carbon monoxide poisoning. The American doctor had said that the levels of CO were so high in our house that it was nothing short of miraculous that our small kids didn't die. The CO was leaking into the house at their bedroom. And carbon monoxide has more drastic effects on little bodies than it does on adult bodies. And yet we had all walked out of the house very much alive, sick as dogs, but very much alive. God had done that too. And the more I reflected on it, the more I realized that if Jesus Christ delayed his coming, every one of us in the Quarles family were one day going to die. Some of us might die of old age. Some of us might die of sickness or disease. Some of us might die in an accident. And some of us might die as martyrs at the hands of anti-Christian persecutors. But none of us would die one second before a gracious God permitted or ordained. Because the one who has numbered the hairs of our head has surely numbered our days. And no one can add or subtract from them. Because if a sparrow does not plummet to the earth without God's permission, and approval, then a Christian disciple will surely not be struck down unless God ordains or permits. And although Jesus had given us the human point of view earlier that human persecutors have the power and authority to take our physical life, what Christ is telling us here is it looks that way on the surface, but in reality they don't. Your destiny is in the hands of a sovereign, gracious God. And no one can take your life from you unless I yield it to them. And that confidence in God's sovereignty can give us boldness in the face of persecution. We can preach the gospel fearlessly because we have no one to fear. Except an almighty powerful God. You say, well, this sounds pretty serious. I, I didn't know I was getting into all this when I attended a service at a Christian church. Why in the world would I want to lay down my life for Christ? And the answer is simple because he laid down his life for us. We bear the cross for him because he bore the cross. For us, the perfect, holy God-man went to Calvary's cross and suffered indescribable tortures, both physical and spiritual, in order to grant us forgiveness of sin, life-changing power, and the promise of eternal life with the Father. The sacrifice He made for us was so enormous that no sacrifice we can make is really a sacrifice at all by comparison. Why should we be willing to lay down our life and suffer for Him? Well, Christ says it clearly. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. It is enough for the servant to be like his master. His point is that the true slave and disciple of Jesus Christ's greatest aspiration is to be like him. And that not only applies to our character and behavior. That applies to us following him on the path of suffering so that we are willing to suffer even as he suffered. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? It may be that there are some here today who have never become disciples of the Lord Jesus. I ask you to now. Believe now that Jesus is the Son of God, God in human form. Believe now that he is the savior who died on the cross for your sins and your place so that you could escape the punishment you rightly deserve. And submit now to Jesus authority as the king of your life so that the purpose of your life is to live for him and not for yourself so that you love him before everything else and everyone. Else, And when you trust Jesus as God's Savior and King, you are given the promise that your sin is taken as far from you as the east is from the west. All your guilt has been erased from the sight of the heavenly judge. You are promised that the power of the Holy Spirit is unleashed to work in your life and change you from the inside out so that you can break the bonds of the sinful habits that have enslaved you. You can live life God's way, a new and different way. And with your faith in Jesus Christ, you are given the promise of spending eternal life with him. Blessings beyond description. Some of you professed that faith long ago, but you've not demonstrated that faith in your life and witness Because you've not been innocent in the face of persecution. You've lived like the world so that you don't have to suffer for Christ. Christ says that won't do. You must be faithful to him, even when it's unpopular and costly. Some of you have silenced the gospel to escape persecution. Christ says that won't do. You must, by the Spirit's power, conquer your fear. So that you proclaim the good news, not in a whisper, but with a shout to a dark world that desperately needs to hear it. Would you pray right now for God to give you the courage to proclaim the good news in the face of persecution?